Welcome to New Perceptions Podcast, the official podcast of the Journal of Psychedelic Psychiatry. New Perceptions Podcast is for education, information, and aim purposes only. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and do not reflect the official policies of the This podcast is the Journal of Psychedelic Psychiatry and does not support or condone legal use and distribution of sale of psychedelic substances. Furthermore, the topics discussed should not be solely used to diagnose treatment, prevent disease, or conditions, and the reading of the listening to this podcast does not constitute a contribution to The content discussed does not constitute medical advice, and any specific medical questions should be directed toward or personal health care professionals. Today on the podcast. Dr. Josh Siegel obtained his BA, MD, and PhD in neuroscience from Washington University in St. Louis. He is currently a PGY2 psychiatry resident at Washington University and is engaged into research uh, looking into treatment-resistant depression. Dr. Siegel, welcome to the New Perceptions podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to join you guys. This is my first podcasting experience, actually. <laughs> so, well, welcome. We're glad to have you. A little nervous. A little nervous. You kind of start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm um, so, uh, like Tyler said, I'm currently a, a psychiatry resident at Washington University. But my background is uh, that I did uh, MD PhD at Washington University. My PhD was in systems neuroscience and it was neuroimaging research. So I kind of really got into the biology of neuroimaging of functional connectivity and methods and in residency I've started to take those tools into a new direction of looking at you know psychopharmacology. You also have a specific interest in treatment resistant depression. Um, what role do you see like newer antidepressants something like ketamine or psilocybin in the future how they might play in the management of the, this condition and then when did you start becoming like interested in this kind of topic? Yeah, well, um, I mean, to be honest, I, I guess I kind of, even choosing psychiatry came at it more from a drug drug perspective more than a specific disease. I think, you know, uh, I'm interested in the brain and neurotransmitter systems and, and understanding how different chemicals can affect that system and uh, and also how that, you know, different chemicals can help us learn about the brain probably the first thing before like, you know, a specific interest in depression. Um, and uh, wait, what was the second part of your question? <laughs> Just kind of when you became interested in it and like, yeah, what yeah. Do you think the role of ketamine and psilocybin could be. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, so my, I mean, in my PhD, I was actually doing stroke research, um, but it was neuroimaging research and I, and it was, so it was with neurology actually. And I kind of figured I was going to go into neurology, and, but I was just, you know, obviously I, I love neuroscience. I would kind of casually read all kinds of different stuff and just became more and more interested in some of the research that was starting to come out with psilocybin. Actually, actually, to be honest, it was both psilocybin and ketamine. This is like five years ago. Like both of those were the coolest things as far as I was concerned that were happening in, in you know, neuroscience just like studies coming out with neuroimaging clinical trials with ketamine that were just like blowing people away. So that's kind of what started that out. Sounds good. And can you share with the listeners kind of what you've been researching in regards to the ketamine and treatment resistant depression? Yeah, sure. So, um, so the ketamine work is, and this was actually uh, a project. So 
when I started residency two years ago, I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to work on a project that um, Nuri Farber, who's actually the residency director at for WashU Psychiatry, had started him and Eric Lenz, and they had started like I think six years ago now, uh, five or six years ago. Um, they've he's done ketamine research for decades, actually. Um, actually, first was interested in it as a model for psychosis, like a psychotomimetic, um, and for understanding the pathophysiology of psychosis. And then kind of as then he's transitioned to, you know, using it for depression as that's become, as that was discovered and has become more interested. And so they had this paradigm, which is actually kind of wacky. It seemed wacky to me at the time, which is a 96 hour ketamine infusion. And so, and so I don't know if you all, you know, how much you know about ketamine as an antidepressant, but it's, it's, uh, different dose from you know from anesthetic it's you know about probably half or less of the dose that's used as an anesthetic um but there was there's kind of just i guess it started out as anecdotal data and then some some trials actually looking at this longer ketamine infusion i think i think what it was as far as i understand these are patients who um were in the hospital, like in an ICU setting, for example, who actually the first place it was looked at was chronic pain, who had severe chronic pain. And, you know, people would do this uh, ketamine infusion and just report these ridiculous results that people with chronic pain would have resolution of their chronic pain and it would last for months. You know, these are people who have suffered from for years from chronic pain, which you know, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but a lot of the, a lot of similar probably you know neurobiology and and pathophysiology of chronic pain and depression, and they just fi- found you know a couple studies found that doing this prolonged relatively low dose ketamine infusion caused this you know insanely long without any further follow up or treatment uh, decrease in in pain that would last for months and months up to eight months, so so. Nuri Farber and Eric Lenz were curious to try this for depression. And so they did this study with depressed patients, did a 96 hour infusion. So they come in four days, basically um, just hooked up to a ketamine drip. Um, You know, like I said, they're not unconscious. They're relative. It's a relatively low dose. They're still maybe a little loopy or dissociating, uh, having some of those symptoms. Um, And then, you know, they, from the results from that study, uh, there, people are, you know, you're seeing over 50%, um, probably closer to 70% response and over 50% remission, and it's lasting for over eight weeks. So that was a really cool clinical result. And then the reason that I came in, that they invited me to work on it was because they had also collected neuroimaging data on those subjects and and so, you know, they offered me the opportunity to look at the neuroimaging data. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And you're also currently trying to conduct some research with psilocybin and neuroimaging. Can you kind of talk about the background with this and how it came about? Yeah, sure. So, um, well, I mean, I guess I gave you a little bit of the background already, which was just that it was something that I was reading about in grad school and just thought was interesting and, 
and fascinating. I mean, honestly, mainly just as like a tool to study consciousness and understand consciousness more so probably than a uh, treatment in psychiatry. Um, but, you know, then I think actually, you know, I was following a little literature a little bit. And then shortly before I started residency, Michael Pollan's book came out and I read it obsessively. <laughs> and I was just like, like, you know, if you guys have read it, which I, he, did you have him on the podcast? Uh, working on it. Not yet. Okay. So, I mean, I assume you guys have read it and it's like, yeah. it's, it's incredible, right? I mean, it's just, just amazing. It's a really good job of going through the history and then really talking about, you know, his experience with it individually. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. And I, I mean, I had even like, I had read some of his, what did I read before that? Botany of Desire. And so I had already liked his, his writing. And so when, when that came out, like, as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh my God, I have to read this. And it was, it was fantastic. So, you know, at that point it was like, it was like, I feel like I had had this idea, you know, wouldn't it be cool to, obviously nothing was going on at WashU at the time um, with psilocybin. And so I'd had this idea like, you know, it'd be, it'd be cool to, it was like a pipe dream to research, mm -hmm. to do, be able to do psilocybin studies at WashU. And then the book, and then the book, like a, a few of the professors at WashU read it. And then it was like, wow, you know, I had this realization, like, maybe this is actually like something that, <laughs> that I could suggest now and people wouldn't look at me like I just, you know, wanted to do drugs. <laughs> uh, and so, so that was like, kind of, I think what really prompt started the conversations was we're, we were just talking about his book and like, you know, we should study this. And, and there was some faculty that was willing to give it a try. How did you go through, um, you walk through the approval process for this and going through like the IRB? Yeah. And so I guess the other thing to like clarify is at this point, uh, we, we haven't started the study yet. We have, we have most of the stuff that we need in place. I don't think anybody's doing any imaging research right now. Um, but even like, you know, we haven't, piloted any subjects we have irb tentative irb approval um and we have funding um but we haven't started collecting data but uh we're hopefully going to within the next few months i think we we have some longer term plans and hopes so i guess there's two parts just to clarify so we are partnered with usona institute which um, are you guys familiar with USONA Institute? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they're, they're a U.S. nonprofit, basically pharmaceutical company doing a big psilocybin clinical trial. Um, and so there are like, you know, what do you call it? Um, uh, pharma sponsor. And so they're providing a psilocybin and we're a alternative clinical trial site for them, which basically means we might get we likely would get requested to be a phase three clinical trial and might get requested to be a phase two, but they are providing psilocybin. Um, and then we have our investigator initiated study, um, which at this point, you know, we wanted to start simple, make sure we can do this, you know, give people psilocybin, have the, all the facilities set up at WashU. Um, but also, um, so we're going to, 
we're going to run a few subjects just probably with no imaging. Um, but then after we feel like we're confident with that, uh, the big first project is just going to be healthy adults, um, but it's going to be an intensive imaging uh, paradigm, basically. So there's, um, well, I guess the background. So we're going to put people in the scanner for a much longer period of time than is usually done. And there's kind of this emerging field of literature uh, looking at how you can you can uh, measure somebody's individual connectome. So look at individual brain connectivity. Um, you know, it's much more sensitive to changes because when you're group averaging, uh, as most of the, as all of the psilocybin studies have done, and and frankly, the vast majority of neuroimaging studies have done, you're group averaging. Um, you're losing quite a bit of uh, effect of granularity because of individual difference, um, because of you know averaging effects, and so the plan for the first study is to take a few uh, relatively small number of subjects, image them very intensely over multiple time points, including on and off psilocybin, and be able to look within individuals at uh, what the effect of drug is, both acutely and kind of sustained effects, and. And so the other background, Gershom, uh, you know, to answer your questions, that's really important to me, at least, is that one of the big goals of that of the study that this study that we have that we're just kicking off, hopefully pretty soon, is is because is the fact that psilocybin is a five HT two A agonist, and there is there are many receptors, 5-HT2A receptors, on the neurovasculature. And we know that psilocybin probably affects neurovascular coupling. And we know that this probably is so, well, I guess I should back up. There's been a few different, there's been, at this point, quite a few papers looking at brain connectivity in psilocybin. Many of them, not all, but many have used functional connectivity or resting state fMRI which is you know, fMRI, but used to measure connectivity between areas of the brain based on the blood oxygenation level dependent signal. And one of the very important presumptions of, of functional connectivity is that you, if you're comparing condition A to condition B, for example, and you want to make the statement, oh, brain connectivity in condition B differs in a certain way, your assumption is that neurovascular coupling is the same and that what you're seeing is an effect of, of change in neural activity and not an effect of change in blood flow or change in you know, the way that the vasculature dilates in response to neural activity. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it, it does. And so there's been these, these really kind of huge results with psilocybin, like these huge effects, in other words. but I think that they absolutely haven't adequately worked out to what extent those effects are because of you know, 5-HT2A agonist effects on vasculature versus actual changes in brain connectivity. Dr. Robin Carr at Harris at Imperial College of London is probably the most well-known or well-renowned 
neuroimaging researcher right now in this in this area, and he yeah. kind of has this entropic brain theory that he talks about with neural connectivity, which you kind of alluded to. Where do you think you know yours differs as far as looking at the vascular components, and what do you think it'll kind of contribute to this this field? I think that um, you know he's done fantastic work, and one of the things, one of the biggest strengths, as far as I was concerned, of of some of their early papers from you know Robin Carhart Harris's group and Imperial College of London is that they do have MEG data and they've looked at data with other modalities. And one of the things in neuroimaging, you know, in human neuroimaging especially, is that is that functional connectivity has lots of sources of confound and lots of sources of noise and lots of ways that you can mess up. And EEG has lots of you know, confounds and MEG too, and electrophysiology in general, and lots of sources of noise and lots of ways that you can mess up. But they're fairly different. So when you have a result and you can show that you get the same result with, you know, MRI-based and EEG-based, that I think is a big way to add validity to what you're doing. Um, but I think the fact remains that, you know, what they showed and this whole entropy brain theory is I don't think there's been adequate kind of work to, like I was talking about, you know, really make sure that this is what they are claiming it is. And it, it, the vast majority of, of the basis for that, you know, theory that at least that I've seen is relying on the functional connectivity data. And if you look at the functional connectivity data, I mean, I think um, basically many of the, okay, so many things that are connected at baseline become less connected when you take psilocybin, right? Mm -hmm. And many things that are not connected at baseline become more connected when you take psilocybin. So what does that mean? Basically everything is moving like regression to the mean, right? So if you just added a lot of noise into the system, which is I think to some degree kind of like what the entropy, entropic mm -hmm. brain theory is suggesting, but that, that noise might be neural, it also might be vascular. It also might be like head motion, you know? Mm -hmm. So my point is that it's a, if you're just kind of adding a lot of noise, you really have to be careful about making claims about what that noise is. So, And that's interesting too. And, and so from a logistical standpoint, kind of go back to your, your study, what sort of um, like physical setting are you guys going to be doing? Um, like administration protocol, what, what, what does that look like? Meaning in terms of, so, yeah so meaning like are you moving from dosing room to fmri what dosing um yeah. schedule are you guys going to use potentially and then um are there going to be supervision you know a lot of these studies have kind of these protocols in yeah place. yeah yeah those are great questions and you know people obviously really especially with psilocybin obsess about these questions um we were in terms of i'm going to pick like one small part of your question and answer first just because we were just talking about uh, with the team like a week or two ago, the decorations for the room where patients are going to be, you know, basically taking psilocybin. And, and so there's a, there's a fantastic paper by Matthew Johnson from 2008. Who's, so he's, I guess, a psychologist with the um, Hopkins group. And it's, it's, um, I'm blanking on the name of the paper, but it's basically safety guidelines for psilocybin. And, and 
it actually has pictures of the room that they use. And so I, I just said, you know, this is the first time I've ever referenced a scientific manuscript for interior decorating, mm. but it's, <laughs> but so, I mean, basically we're just using that as our guide. So kind of what Hopkins has done is our, is our guide in terms of, you know, what the setup is going to be. And then also USONA has, has helped us with a lot of that, just making sure we have, you know, uh, a nice playlist, everything from the, you know, people are going to have headphones on. Um, so it basically, so in terms of um, actually, t you know, the, the psilocybin dose and the, the experience, it's fairly similar to what USONA is doing in their clinical trial. Um, which is also not a departure, you know, not much of a departure from what most of these studies have been, which is right. come in in the morning, you get, so I think we're doing 35 milligrams of psilocybin and, um, you, or placebo, um, you put on your, you know, eye blinders, your headphones, you lay on a couch, there's a, so there's a mentor, not mentor, a guide or a facilitator there who you have already talked with ahead of time, who is present throughout the whole thing. Um, I mean, it's going to be, it's, I think, less. So we cut, we scaled down on some of the, you know, therapy or kind of facilitator dyad stuff that's used in clinical trials, since we're not as worried about, you know, getting a therapeutic effect. Um, but tried to keep kind of the core of that. Um, and then, you know, the, the other difference from clinical trials is that, and I don't know if you guys have ever been inside of an MRI, but it's like loud and banging and mm -hmm. potentially be unpleasant. Um, so what we're going to have people, you know, take, basically take psilocybin, um, get in a mock scanner for a while, which is just kind of, makes the same banging noises and is the same claustrophobic shape um, just to make sure they're comfortable with it do the scan and then and then so so the study design so that's the experience so, you, so and then i mean you do the scan then you're you know we have to keep people there of course the whole six or eight hours to make sure that they are safe and and um that it's a good experience for them um, until they're safe to go home. But in terms of the actual study, basically uh, we do some, so we're actually using, actually the, the question of what to use as a placebo has been, uh, has been a big question. And what and, are you guys using for the placebo? Yeah, so, so right now, um, it's and it's a crossover design, I should say. So everybody's going to get both drug and placebo. Sure. Um, right now, we're using methylphenidate, and the biggest probably reason. And so that's what Griffith used, and you know they've used that. It's been used in quite a few studies, but kind of their, their I guess it was two thousand six their big kind of initial study mm -hmm. looking at just the effects of psilocybin, um, psychological and behavioral effects. Um, use methylphenidate as a control and but the bigger reason probably that we chose it rather than niacin which is what a lot of the clinical trials have used as a control is that we wanted to try to match the arousal and um, blood pressure effects of psilocybin more closely um, you know just to get back to this central question of make sure we're controlling for as many of the you know 
potential uh, confounds that could alter the bold signal as possible. So that was so. So we're using methyl methylphenidate for that. Um, but the the it's what we what I want to do, and I'm not sure if we're going to be able to. Is there's a drug called lyseride? Have you ever heard of that? So so lyseride. So this is this is fascinating, and I didn't even had didn't know about any of this when I designed the trial. But it turns out that the serotonin two A receptor is a uh, so it has something called biased agonism, or I suppose you could say it has different downstream pathways that can be activated. And there is this phenomenon called biased agonism where different, you can have two 5-HD2A two agonists. They're both stimulating the same receptor, but they're activating different downstream pathways. And so it turns out that lyseride is actually a, 5-HD2A agonist that does not produce any psychedelic effects. So, so the, 2A, the serotonin 2A receptor has this property and psilocybin, LSD, you know, DOI, mm -hmm. they activate both downstream pathways, um, both the, the one that leads to the psychedelic effects and a non, basically non-hallucinogenic pathway. I'll save the, you know, biochemistry mm -hmm. details, which I'm not a biochemist, so I'm, I don't claim to be an expert in them, but. Is this uh, a relatively new agent or is it something that's been around for a while? No, it's been around for, it's, oh, I don't know, 25 years at least. Mm. Um, it's approved in some, so it's not approved in the U.S. for anything, but it's approved in some places actually as for a few different things for as an anti-Parkinson's drug. So for one thing, it also has some dopamine agonist activity. Mm -hmm. um, and then also as an anti-migraine drug. Um, and it's safe, um, but it is a little more complicated potentially to get it and use it. But the fact that it, but you know, the fact that it hits the exact same receptor and it would be very cool to be able to use that. Um, so, we're still exploring if that's possible. Wow, that sounds very exciting. What, um, kind of on a broader scale, what is it specifically about psychedelics that kind of interests you or excites you the most? Um, well, a few things. <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's, it would be, as uh, somebody who's fascinated by the mind, it's like hard not to be fascinated by psychedelics as a, you know, generally in terms of, I don't know, I don't know what else there is that like, well, you kind of, you kind of mentioned, uh, consciousness and, and yeah, discuss, well, you know, what consciousness is and, and these big kind of big questions that some of these drugs bring up, um, you know, what, what is your kind of take on that? on what do you think we can learn about consciousness from these drugs? Um, yeah, so, you know, for one thing, so I guess what I was, what I was getting at is, is, I don't know what, if there's any other drug that you can give somebody and then give people and then, you know, years later, 70% of them say that it was one of the most meaningful experiences of their life. That's, that's you know, if, that's, if that doesn't kind of make you scratch your head, I don't know what will. Um, so, but I think that does kind of get to 
get to the question of consciousness because it causes, you know, I, I guess I usually call it a transformative experience. And, and there's this, it's like this distinct phenomenon, which it's now been like really well described and you just basically alter somebody's state of consciousness and it, and it causes a transformative experience, which is like fascinating. It's like you alter your state of consciousness all the time. You know, you go to sleep and it doesn't cause a transformative experience. You, what else? You get drunk, you do whatever else you like to do. <laughs> and, but it doesn't like cause an experience that, that you look back on four years later and say, wow, that, you know, changed my whole relationship with reality. Um, so, so I think that's, fascinating what is it about that state um i don't know i don't know how to i don't know how to answer questions about consciousness <laughs> i don't think anyone does <laughs> yeah yeah um but it's clearly you know you're you're changing the system in a way that has long-term effects and in a way that some for some reason you know people interpret as as both incredibly meaningful and then also, uh, you know, changes depression, which by the way is like another, is another um, issue that, that I'm really interested in is the fact that it might be the case. I mean, it's perfectly possible that, that the antidepressant effects of psilocybin have very little to do with the subjective experience. I think people have over, I think people have overblown the the idea that, you know, or acted as though it's obvious that you have this, you know, you get high and, and, and you are better from your depression afterwards. Therefore getting high must've been the reason that you're better from your depression. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And kind of taking a little bit of a larger view too, do you think psychedelics could have any uh, potential in other psychiatric illnesses? Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. I think, I think there's, so there's, so there's a lot of common commonalities between psychiatric illnesses. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you one example, which is uh, the neurotrophic pathway and synaptogenesis and a lot of, so depression, anxiety, um, some eating disorders, PTSD, even psychosis actually, um, all have dysregulation of you know, BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is part of the, basically, there's a common you know, signal processing pathway and, and kind of set of molecules that are involved in synaptogenesis and formation of new synapses. And, um, and those are altered across a variety of psychiatric illnesses and and SSRIs work across a variety of psychiatric illnesses obviously you know we know that ketamine probably we're going to find out does as well um, and and it probably and it probably relates to the neurotrophic cascade so I mean you know clearly there's a lot of commonalities uh, so it's not surprising that you know when you find a new drug it's likely it's going to be effective for more than one disease. Uh, it's just a matter of, I think the big, you know, the big thing that we need to do 
probably even more than finding a new drug is like get better at finding out who's going to benefit from which drug, right? Um, you know, who needs anti-inflammatories to treat their depression and who needs, who needs neurotrophic factors and who needs, you know, some other monoamine drug um, and who needs ECT. That's going to be a bigger, bigger question, but I, but definitely, you know, the, I think not surprisingly, the data is mounting now for psilocybin for anxiety, eating disorders, or not psilocybin, but people have used a variety of psychedelics. But you know, for well, I think you're right. I believe John Hopkins is actually studying psilocybin and like smoking cessation and yeah, yeah, for example, like anorexia. So there's a lot of their applications definitely that they're they're looking into, uh, like you mentioned for psilocybin. Right. Yeah, and I was just saying i think that's you know it's not surprising i mean obviously we have to figure out what it does and doesn't work for but it's we shouldn't be surprised that it's going to work for more than you know just depression or anxiety yeah and so a lot of this is kind of basic science research that we're we're seeing now and it's going to take a while for us to be able to translate that into the, the clinical practice but i'm just curious from from your perspective since you kind of operate in both worlds what do you think the biggest challenges are going to be when we move from the laboratory into clinical practice as far as implementation with with these drugs and all that we know about you know how sensitive they are to changes in environment and changes in, in mindset and everything else and so how do you think we're going to approach yeah. those challenges well that's a good question i mean i think i don't even know if you know it may be that we'll find some other drug that uh, produces the same effects that is much faster. You know, you don't have to be on a trip for eight hours or uh, much easier. So that might end up being the case. Um, I think if if it ends up if it ends up that these current clinical trials are really successful and FDA wants to approve psilocybin. Uh, that'll be interesting. That'll be really interesting, you know, for all of us who are going out into the psychiatry world. Uh, I think ketamine will, is like the gateway drug, right? It's like letting it's, we have to set up these, you know, interventional clinics now where we're giving people drugs and monitoring them, which is a, in some ways, and, and Brexanolone too, you know, um, mm-hmm. which is a 60 hour infusion. Uh, in some ways, those are paving the way for this kind of different way of doing psychiatric practice so maybe you know a few years down the road it won't seem that strange to come in and do your do your trip treatment and and hang out for the day and then go home and you know just kind of as we we wrap up here on on that note do you have any uh, specific you know resources that you go to whenever you're trying to to learn about this stuff you mentioned michael pollan's book is kind of an inspiration just curious if there's any other uh, information out there you think the listeners might benefit from hearing from absolutely i i suppose the the go-to that i will recommend is uh a book which has been like my tome which is the behavioral neurobiology of psychedelic drugs which is by uh halberstrand uh, franz Wollenweider and david nickel or nichols sorry um and those are at least the last two are like two of the like, giants, like the holy trinity of psychedelic research. 
Uh, and that book has like, it's, it was just published in 2018. Um, so it's pretty up to date and it has so much like, and I still, I, I'm still like trying to digest everything in there. So. And then, my, and you know, just kind of uh, on the last point here, just what are some, some key points you think the listeners should take away as far as psychedelics are concerned and, and your research that you're doing? Um, well, you know, I guess I'll, I will leave it with, with just like, a, you know, reiterating the fact that I think it, it may be that the, the, per, the experience of taking a psychedelic ends up having very little to do with the therapeutic effects. Those might be completely different things. I think it's, in fact, there's some evidence that without going too much into a tangent, since <laughs> they're trying to wrap up, um, there's some evidence that ketamine and psilocybin work through a common pathway, which is basically, to make a long story short, increasing glutamate, activity in the prefrontal cortex and increasing AMPA receptors leads to this cascade that results in uh, synaptic plasticity, BDNF, um, you know, the neurotrophic cascade, basically. Uh, and it might be that we can just stimulate, you know, it might be that you take a psychedelic and uh, something about that experience, um, you know, I, I'm not saying that the subjective experience has no relationship to that signaling cascade. I'm just saying that we shouldn't assume that just getting, you know, having this uh, freaky experience is what's causing your depression to get better. Um, you know, this is, this is interesting neurobiology that we're just like starting to understand. Yeah. I think that's a great place to leave it. Dr. Josh Siegel, thank you for coming on New Perceptions. Thanks, guys. This was fun. I hope you've enjoyed today's interview. If you would like to submit an article for potential publication in the journal or you have further questions, please visit our website, journalofpsychedelicpsychiatry.org, or send us an email at journalofpsychedelicpsychiatry at gmail.com. To stay up to date on all the latest information regarding the journal, please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening to New Perceptions.